Welcome everyone to Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren. And today I'm excited to be joined by Daniel T. Richards. Daniel is a digital strategist and rhetorician with 10 years experience in social media, graphic design, and content marketing. He's helped clients raise hundreds of thousands of dollars through crowdfunding, including the film Frack Nation, which at the time was one of the most successful Kickstarter campaigns in the platform's history. In his spare time, Daniel is an advocate for capitalism, individual rights, and romantic art on Welcome to the Midside, a podcast he has co-hosted for seven years. He's also a beer and whiskey enthusiast, uh, which helps him cope with being the father of a precocious one-year-old. You can follow him on Twitter at Daniel T. Richards, um, or you can check out his podcast, Welcome to the Midside, at themidside.com slash podcast. I'll put the links below um, in the show notes here. but. Daniel, welcome to Unsafe Space. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Carter. Nice to be here. It's good to talk to you. There's a lot that I know we want to talk to you about, but in particular today, I want to talk about something that maybe sounds a little bit odd to get excited about, but it's fracking. And the, the reason that I think this is interesting is I think we're in a culture right now in which people are coming to view the narratives spun by Hollywood and legacy media at, with an increasing amount of skepticism, healthy healthy skepticism. Mm -hmm. And as a result, that means questioning a lot of beliefs that people just kind of take for granted. And fracking is one of these, you know, I think we have a lot of beliefs about the environment and climate change and things that we take for granted. But fracking is one of the ones that is a bit niche, but it touches on all these other topics. And you were involved in the documentary Frack Nation. So I thought it would be good to just have this discussion about about fracking. So maybe we could start by you just explaining to the audience, what the hell is fracking? Because I don't think everyone understands what that is. Sure, happy to do so. So fracking is actually short for hydraulic fracturing or hydrofracking. And it's uh, the preferred scare term of uh, the anti-human environmentalist left to say fracking because it sounds very scary. It's got that hard K right in the middle. It's good, it's good rhetoric. It's good uh, PR against, against the method. It's often called a drilling technique, but in fact, it has nothing to do with drilling. It has to do with the extraction of, of oil or more commonly natural gas, but really it's a process that happens after drilling. So you have the conventional drilling where you uh, literally drill down into shale in this case, uh, and then with the hydraulic fracturing process, what you do is you inject mostly water, um, in fact, a huge percentage water, many, many thousands, if not millions of gallons of water um, into the hole that you drilled. And you also have added to that sand and some chemicals, scary chemicals. And what that does is it opens fissures in the shale or in the rock that allow more oil or natural gas to flow out of the ground. This became very prominent. Uh, in the 90s and then in the early 2000s when we combined both hydraulic fracturing with horizontal drilling. So instead of just drilling straight down, instead if you think of a drill as a bendy straw and it drilled down and then went across, uh, you, when you combine those two things, the horizontal drilling with the fracking, it opened up so much in the oil and natural gas reserves that we couldn't access before and allowed for really a brand new revolution in oil and natural gas, sometimes called the shale boom, because we were getting so much new natural gas out of, out of these basins of shale that we thought were either uh, inaccessible or just uneconomical to really drill um, and then take advantage of. So 
that's the process. It's, uh, it's, it's new in its use, but it's not new in its conception. Um, one of the things that you hear is that it's, it's a brand new technology that's unproven and untested, but in fact, wells have been fracked in the United States since the late 40s. Uh, in fact, were commercially used in the 50s and 60s all the time. So, wow. yeah. I, I think of, first of all, you're right about the term fracking. It sounds like a swear word. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and which I'm sure is intentional by the people who used it. And I, I always think of fracking as the Ellis Wyatt method. Uh, Very good. Um, yes. for, those, for those viewers <laughs> familiar with Atlas Shrugged, there's, there's Ellis Wyatt and he's devises a way to get uh, oil from shale that are previously, you know, quote, dead oil fields. And fracking always comes to mind. I don't know if that was an inspiration that Ayn Rand had, but certainly I think of fracking. Absolutely. Love it. So I, before we, there's a lot to actually talk about here, but before we do, I think um, there's a couple ways we could approach this. One is I think a lot of people were just not paying attention to fracking at all. It was just one of those, I mean, how many people know about different oil drilling techniques and extraction techniques? It's, it's not something that's in the public uh, consciousness normally. Until Josh Fox did this documentary called Gasland several mm -hmm. years ago. And this was pretty visually horrifying and certainly made it seem like fracking was this horrible, horrible thing that big evil corporations were getting away with at the expense of innocent farmers and, and rural residents. And there's some scenes, I mean, one of the scenes in there, someone lights their water on fire that's coming out of their faucet and it's like, oh my God. And, and there's, he lists all the chemicals that go in and, and he, he has people showing dirty water saying this is from fracking and, uh, you know, the residents complaining. And this was predominantly uh, focused on the Delaware River Basin, which is, um, I guess, the Marcellus Shale area there where a lot of fracking was done. Um, and the, the movie that you worked on, Frack Nation, was really a response to this, this Gasland documentary. Can you tell us, just before we, you know, before we dive into kind of general energy stuff, what, why was there a response necessary to this video? <laughs> sure, absolutely. So you're right. The, it was a documentary bought uh, later by HBO that went on to be Academy Award nominated. So it got a lot of accolades, got out into the, the zeitgeist, was very commonly watched on campuses across the country, especially the hotbed of intellectualism that is college campuses. Um, and so basically the, the reason for a response was a journalist named Philem McAleer. He's an Irish journalist. Uh, his wife, Anne McElhaney, is also a journalist. And Phelan had covered all sorts of stories across the world, but he'd start to, he'd start to be known for covering environmentalist issues. He, he did a documentary film called Mind Your Own Business about mining operations in Europe and how uh, the environmentalists there were trying to shut them down when it was, in fact, the locals of these very small rural towns who really wanted the mines because they were bringing work, they were bringing uh, economic booms to these places that hadn't seen them in, in generations. Um, and so he went to a town hall with Josh Fox and asked some very simple questions of the filmmaker. Um, so one of the ones he asked was, uh, in your research for the film, did you know that people could light their water on fire in these areas before fracking came around? And the filmmaker had a very weird response. <laughs> His response was, 
who are you? Where do you work for? Who's paying you? Right. <laughs> so Philip is a, is a journalist and he's one of these journalists who is uh, after this thing called the truth, which uh, is a little I've strange. About that. You don't uh, see it around much lately. No, it's, it's not really in fashion at the moment, but he's, he's very persistent which I really like about him. And so he kept asking more questions. He eventually got Josh Fox to admit on camera that yes, he had in fact come across research that showed people could light their water on fire before fracking came to their areas, but he didn't include it in Gasland because quote, it wasn't relevant. You've said yourself, people lit their water long before fracking started. Isn't that correct? Well, yes, but it's not relevant. <laughs> That's, that scene is one of my favorite just exposés of it wasn't relevant to my career as a <laughs> documentarian. What was it not relevant to? Because certainly right. it was relevant to the truth. Yes, absolutely. So that sparked Phelan's interest that he and his wife then started talking with folks in Pennsylvania, specifically in Dimmick, Pennsylvania, which is one of the towns that Josh highlights in his documentary as being devastated by hydraulic fracturing, where all the residents were up in arms uh, about uh, this, this, this new uh, uh, technique coming to town. And what they discovered literally going door to door is that they could only find 11 families in this town of about 1,500 people who were against fracking. Everyone else was very in favor of it. And so he, they asked, why were these 11 families against fracking? Had their water been contaminated? Had, uh, had they, their children experienced health issues? Uh, and the answer was basically no. They were in a lawsuit against the oil companies. So this um, led him down a road of wanting to do a full film on this to feature these voices and other voices uh, in rural America who are not being represented by Josh Fox and the uh, mainstream media's interpretation or presentation or distortion of, of the truth. So I went to Kickstarter. Um, this was sort of the early-ish days of Kickstarter where you could uh, do a real grassroots campaign. And what we did was ask people, do you want to learn the truth about fracking? We'll send Phelan across the country or wherever <laughs> he needs to go and he'll talk to people and we'll, we'll report back. Uh, and we raised over $200,000 to do a documentary about uh, fracking. Uh, one of the things that we did in that campaign, we could have raised a lot more money, but we were very adamant that this was going to be a grassroots investigation. So we uh, invest, uh, we looked into all the people who donated to the Kickstarter campaign, and we actually returned uh, tens of thousands of dollars from executives in the oil and gas industry um, so that there could be no objection claim that you were supported by the funders of the film so every funder in the film is listed in the credits people can look them up they're you know regular people that, that have regular jobs who live in these small towns where fracking is happening and many of them are uh you know affected in the most positive ways you can imagine more more jobs more money more tax dollars for infrastructure um, and, and they wanted their story told. So that, that was the impetus for the film and why they're needed, I think, to be a significant reaction. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that comes out of the film, at least from a layperson's perspective, is an understanding of a couple things. One is that methane has been in water in that area for decades prior to fracking, so it's oh, not yeah. really related Centuries. to fracking. Um, <laughs> two... I didn't realize fracking occurs like one to two miles below the surface. It's well below the water table. It's nowhere near the water table. So the idea, like I think people think 
they think of the underground as just one kind of thing and my water's down there and you're injecting some stuff and of course it gets mixed up. It's, it's well, well, well below the water table um, in this, at least in this area, obviously water tables can vary. Yes. And so that was interesting to me. Um, and frankly, the other thing that was just odd was that there was no real data for any of the claims about flat, any of the, the negative claims. You had people saying that they had bad water, but when the EPA tested it, it was fine. You had a lot of hype and, you know, these, these shots of water getting lit on fire and lists of, quote, chemicals that were being pumped into the ground. But it was, it was all scare tactics. I think you had an expert from, from Berkeley who looked at that and said, well, you could list those, you know, you could make coffee look like that with listing the chemicals. They're just taking the long Latin names of chemicals and throwing them on the screen to make you go, ooh, there's chemicals in the ground. Absolutely. And not that there aren't some chemicals, but uh, it really made the whole uh Gasland documentary looked like a farce to me. Yeah, it, it, and it was. I'm glad it did look like that because it was a propaganda piece. Um, so one of the many things I think, the scariest scene obviously in Gasland is the lighting the water on fire, right? No one, I mean, that's water is such this necessary and precious resource and to think when you open your tap, flames could come out of it. It's right. frightening. It is an amazing piece of visual rhetoric. But the reality is that methane has been in water in areas since people lived there. There are towns on the East Coast all over named Burning Springs. Why is that? Because people can throw a match into the river and it will light on fire because there is so much methane in the ground that it seeps up. In fact, uh, I believe it was George Washington as a child used to go down and light the Mill River on fire because what else do you have to do when you're a child uh, hey, in the 1700s? If I could light rivers on fire when I was a kid, absolutely I'd have been doing it. <laughs> Sounds fun. So, uh, so these, these things are, occur naturally, and uh, there are ways people deal with it. They get um, uh, you know, special equipment installed so that it, it filters out the methane from their water, but sometimes it seeps in anyway. Um, and then the other element about the chemicals, so hydraulic fracturing. If you're, if you're studying language, hydraulic water, hydro water, the right. vast, vast majority of what's being pumped into the ground to get these fissures to open is water. Fracking, the, the solution, fracking fluid is in fact, uh, every solution is different, but on average, they are about 90% water, 9.5% sand. The sand is to hold the fissures open once they're cracked and you have to have something that holds it just ever so slightly open so the oil and gas can get out. And then the 0.5% are chemicals, uh, which vary, depend on the company, but they're mostly, when you look up the chemicals which are listed, they're like sodium, right. might know that as salt, uh, <laughs> guar gum, which sounds frightening, but it's in ice cream. It's a uh, sticky residue that keeps the ice cream held together. And then there are some chemicals where if you ingested them in mass scale, they would harm you. But the point here is one, no one's ingesting them. And two, even if they were drinking fracking fluid like Governor Hickenlooper did in his own home state to show that it was safe, it's chemicals not in a concentration such that it would harm anyone. Um, but as you pointed out, it's happening so far below the surface that it would defy gravity, it would defy physics to literally find its way upward into the water tables. We sat down with uh, the executives from Halliburton. They, they have a frac fluid that is made out of food additives. You can drink it. Uh, I, I, 
we did drink it around the tables. I didn't realize that Governor Hickenlooper drank fracking fluid to demonstrate that it was safe. Yes, he did. He was a big proponent of uh, oil and natural gas drilling, specifically fracking, in his home state. And he went to a demonstration and actually drank um, a partial glass of fracking fluid. Wow. Um, (laughs) So I I think one of the things that... um, is also, I think, important to, to realize is, at least in the community that Josh Fox focused on in his documentary, the, the farming community, I mean, it's, it gets increasingly difficult as generations pass to make a living as a farmer. So a lot of these farmers were relying on being able to rent land to the natural gas company in order to keep their farm running. And as far as I looked this up right before the show, it looks like the moratorium, so because of Josh's documentary, there was a lot of hype and there was ended up being a moratorium on fracking in the area. I think that's still in place and they're now making it permanent. So yes, he has basically driven the nail into the coffins of these farms. Yes, the Delaware River Basin Commission, which is uh, a governmental entity, but it is it's it's a very strange one in the in the sense that you can't vote these commissioners out. They're sort of appointed, and there's really nothing you can do about it. Put a moratorium on fracking in the entirety of the Delaware River Basin, which covers a lot of the Marcellus Shales. You were as you were saying at the top of the show, and it was supposed to be a temporary moratorium to study it to make sure that it was safe, uh, but it has effectively turned into a permanent. Uh, moratorium since they never lifted it. In fact, they recommended recently to make it permanent to just not <laughs> continue their studies, uh, which is when you think about when gasoline came out, which I believe was 2010, and the amount of fracking that's been done since then with no environmental devastation. I mean, over uh, over a million wells have been fracked in the United States uh, since 2015, which are the latest uh, reliable numbers. It's much, much more by now. Um, and you go to the places where it's happening, Odessa, Texas, or the Bakken Shale in North Dakota, or Pennsylvania, there is not environmental devastation in these places. People are not dying from drinking water out of these wells. They are pristine um, wilderness areas because fracking actually has a much smaller environmental footprint overall. Instead of having to drill multiple wells across pads all over, say, a forest or an area, you can drill one and then use the horizontal technique to go out in many different directions, thus reducing the environmental impact by 80-90% in most cases. Um, So after all of this, yet the Delaware River Basin Commission has not uh, left left up in their moratorium and places like in upstate New York uh, where the the New York government has made the fracking uh, moratorium permanent are are still suffering because of it. Yeah, and and also it's not like they found reasons to make it permanent. It's not like, oh, we studied and it turns out uh, it's killing people. It's just, they just want to make it permanent because it's politically expedient. That's right. It is politically expedient. It, it feeds to a certain base. It feeds to a scare tactic. It's sort of the 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 easy thing to do in a certain sense. It's, it's uh, already in place. There was already a sort of fear uh, tactic around it, and now they don't have to do anything. They don't actually have to take the proactive steps to be the politicians who are supposed to be the good stewards of their constituencies and their and their land. They don't have to do that. They can just say, "Well, better safe than sorry." Uh, we'll take this this safety first mentality, and and we'll miss out on hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue for our residents and also in taxes, which is a shame. 
Yeah, and and probably see a lot of uh, generationally owned farms go out of business. Absolutely. That is, you know, one of the, the elements of the documentary is that Phelan wanted to talk to real people who were dealing with this in their literal backyards. And time after time after time, especially from the farmers who are the number one stewards of the land in this country, the farmer said, first of all, do you think I would let anything on my land that would do something to it? It's overall my livelihood. And it not just is, it's not just my livelihood, it's my way of life. It is something that I am deeply concerned with. But two, um, if we don't allow this, if we don't allow some royalties from natural gas here, I'm not going to be able to do this or we're going to have to consolidate with, with bigger farming or we're going to have to sell our farm to Monsanto or whoever else, uh, right. you know, the other horrible left companies that the, the left hates. Um, and they're forcing them into these situations. One one other thing that struck me with so, so the first time I watched Frack Nation, it was I don't know year, a few years ago when it, when it first came out. Mm-hmm. But I watched it again, like I said, I watched it again last night, and you know it's interesting to to watch it in the context of our current political climate, where we have the 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 mainstream media and basically everyone left of center and even in the center hyper concerned about. Putin's influence on the country and Trump and oh my God, you know, Trump is Putin's puppet and oh, did they, you know, they bought a couple hundred thousand dollars of Facebook ads. Did that screw up the election? And, and, you know, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of other arguments I can make against being concerned about all that. However, the thing that struck me was, and this is, was brought up in Frack Nation. So Gazprom is is Russia is one of Russia's crown jewels. It's it provides a hell of a lot of revenue, uh, not only to Putin himself but to Russia, and it is extremely important for Russia to have Gazprom um, profitable and make as much money as possible. And Gazprom obviously sells natural gas, and therefore competes with anyone else who might sell natural gas. And Putin went on basically the rampage against fracking saying, oh, suddenly Russia cares about the environment and oh, you shouldn't frack because it's very bad for the environment. Um, And it just struck me as odd that if if we're going to be hyper-concerned about Putin's influence, shouldn't we question where a lot of this anti-fracking rhetoric comes from and who's funding it? Because gee, Gazprom stands to make a hell of a lot of money if we shut down fracking across Europe, for example. Absolutely. And, has, by the way, of, of people have. Yes, absolutely. The, the, um, we, we now know uh, that many of the um, groups that were attacking fracking were getting uh, money from the Russian government or through Russian front groups. I, we can't say that about Josh Fox, to be 100% truthful. We can't say that he was uh, engaging in any, any of that. No evidence there. But certainly um, other anti-fracking groups were. Um, and in fact, there was a, a movie called Promised Land which starred Matt Damon and John uh, Krasinski, I believe, from The Office. um, Oh, yeah. Where Matt Damon was a uh, salesman in the oil and gas industry trying to sell fracking to this town. And John Krasinski was this teacher who was morally opposed and knew that it would kill them all. And there's a twist in the end that I won't give away in case anyone really wants to dive in. But the film was very heavily anti-fracking. Turns out the funding for that film came from Abu Dhabi, and the, the uh, Arab oil interests there who were trying to uh, 
downplay fracking in the United States. So it's not really this grassroots movement, right? It's, it's well-funded propaganda, foreign mostly, and the big dollar stuff. But um, and it has nothing to do with reality. The reality is that the communities that want fracking, the communities that have fracking, I should say, want it want more of it and want to encourage other people to do it because it makes them better off, it makes their communities better off, and it makes the United States better off. I will say though, Carter, that this is a story that has somewhat of a happy ending in the sense that the, the fighting um, over fracking uh, has not led to a ban on fracking nationwide. In fact, the United States has become a net exporter of natural gas, which I think is a good thing for the world overall. Uh, we could be doing even more of it if some of these communities lightened up on their local regulations. But the reason I keep talking about fracking and the reason uh, I want to talk to you about it is because the fight is never ending. If we give up on this, if we if we allow the left to regain traction on this narrative, uh, this could go away as quickly as it came. Well, and it's related to it's related to other narratives as well. And I think maybe because you're a rhetorician, maybe it's a good time to like pull the the veil back on this a little bit and 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 understand what methods are being used from a propaganda perspective um, to push this kind of stuff because I think a lot of us have this idea that people approach subjects objectively and they lay out some facts and um, obviously that's not what happens and also facts aren't necessarily what convinces people so right um, I know this is a bit of an open-ended question, but do you want to talk a little bit about like how did Josh Fox go about doing this? How did he, because they do this with other things, right? It's not just fracking. So certainly the in for Josh Fox was the fear factor. Uh, we inherently as humans have at least some skepticism, if not an outright fear of what is new. So this was portrayed as something that was new and untested. Uh, as opposed to conventional drilling, for instance, where we know that that works even though it's bad, according to environmentalists. Um, and then the sort of addition with the the visual rhetoric of the the flaming faucets and whatnot. But I think what you're getting at and what the core of this is, is we have to look at the premises of the people that are attacking frack. And we have to look at what they're what they're deriving at deep down. Uh, and and I, I think the environmentalist movement, at least in its more radical form, I'm not saying the people who think we should not litter and we should <laughs> not pollute, et cetera, but the more radical uh, environmentalists who actually move the movement along itself, there is an anti-human worldview to it. So, or, or to put it in a positive sense, a pro-wilderness uh, view to it, which is the idea that earth is somehow pristine. Earth is somehow uh, this beautiful mechanism that operated uh, wonderfully until the big bad human beings came along. And it was the human beings who decimated the fragile, pristine environment. We hurt the environment. And so environmentalists talk about the environment as, as if it is this entity separate from us, human beings. So one of the core questions that we started asking, uh, by we I mean Anne and Thielem and anyone who's interested in energy issues, Alex Epstein for, for an, another name to throw out there, was what does environment mean separate from a thing living in the environment? And to be less obtuse about it, there's no such thing as an environment unless it's in an environment for something. So that means there's an environment for 
beavers and there's an environment for bacteria and there's an environment for all sorts of things, but there's also a human environment. And so to talk about the environment as this sort of abstraction, as this thing to be left alone, necessarily means that human beings will not thrive in this situation. And to get really philosophical here, please, I'm on your show to do it. It's because you have to ask the question, what do humans need to survive? What is the essence? What do they do in order to live and to thrive? Human beings uh, don't have talons. We don't have wings. We don't even really have instincts. What human beings have is our rational mind. And human beings change our environment, change our background to suit our needs. That is the stunning achievement of human beings. So to take the core premise of the environmentalists, they say, well, anything that affects the environment per se is bad because we're altering it. So that means anything humans do is bad per se because humans must alter the environment in order to survive. So when you combine uh, these perspectives, I think you see that there are two different core premises coming about. There's the anti-human premise, which is in the modern environmentalist movement of anything humans do is wrong. We must leave the environment pristine. And then, then there's the human-centric perspective, which comes through, I think, in Frack Nation and in a, a book by Alex Epstein called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. But also, if your listeners are interested, there is a, a philosopher named Julian Simon who they should check out. Uh, and the idea is, no, no, no. What, what is it that we need for human beings to thrive in this environment? Um, and if you look at the oil and natural gas industries and industrialization and the whole energy movement, human beings are living longer, healthier, more prosperous lives than any time in world history. And it is in no small part to the fact that we have more natural gas now, that we're using more fossil fuels, that we're using more industrialization to make our lives better, that we're using our mind to make our lives better. And that, I think, is what is abhorrent to the environmentalists. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. So that was, that was very broad. And if you have any questions. No, about no I, it, was, it was great. And, and I loved it. And, and I, I do think, you know, this is the question you mentioned, Alex Epstein. This is one of the questions that he asks is what is necessary for human flourishing? Right. Yes. That's the question. And that doesn't mean that, you know, if that's your, if that's your question, it doesn't mean you end up with answers like, well, pollution's fine because right. that's not good for human flourishing. Right. There are, there are limits to what you should be doing and, and how you should be impacting the environment generally with human flourishing as your standard. So it's not that, it's not that this turns into like throw your, your nuclear waste out your window and good luck, right? It's, yes. it's just a question of what your standard is. And I, it is something that I think once I heard Alex make that case, that human flourishing should be the standard. It became very obvious when you saw a lot of what you, know, what you were calling the radical environmentalist movement, um, it, when you saw what their premises were, that it was not human flourishing. Human flourishing is not only not their premise, it's kind of their nemesis. Yes. Human flourishing is, it's really not what they're all about at all. And um, I don't know, I, I think we take, as, as a modern civilized culture, we take energy for granted in a way that is almost hard to even explain to people. Yes. It's almost hard to even grasp how much we take it for, for granted. This is one thing that really struck me when I, when I first met 
Anne and Phelan, I, I, I heard Anne give a talk about energy and the importance of energy. And she, she made this, this rhetorical point about how when we're explaining energy to people, you have to make this connection that they don't make, which is that when we're drilling in the ground for oil and oil is coming out of the ground, what's really coming out of the ground are washing machines, antibiotics, uh, you know, IVs. Yes. I mean, what's really coming out of the ground are all these things that make life better, not just from the necessity standpoint of, of uh, you know, literally living, but also thriving, being able to have more uh, time to pursue leisure, more time to pursue philosophy and the arts and, and all the wonderful things that make life worth living. Um, and there's no connection to that. You see that in um, like po the politicians of today, uh, Representative uh, Ocasio-Cortez, who says her generation has never seen prosperity. Um, this, <laughs> this is the most prosperous time in human history, and it is not even close. Uh, human beings, even the, the, I mean, the poorest among us, first of all, is decreasing rapidly. For the first time in world history, less than 10% of the world population lives in abject poverty. That is remarkable, considering that even uh, something like 20 years ago, it was more like 20% of people lived in abject poverty. Uh, someone should look those numbers up, but it's something like that. Yep. Um, but then in world history, the vast majority of people lived in abject poverty, lived very short lives, lived very difficult lives where they had to subsistence farm or, or, or toil for, for most of the day just in order to survive to the next day in order to toil. Now we don't have that. Now we live where the toiling might be on our iPhones uh, with, with a particular version of Angry Birds that we're, that we're uh, upset that we can't beat. Um, that's the kind of toiling that we have now, thanks to in the Industrial Revolution, industrial progress, and energy use. And it's, it's maybe uh, easier to see if you go to a third world nation where there is not cheap, plentiful power and you see the impact on the population. And to me, there's just, um, if you have a, a bone of empathy in your body, you, you look at, at those people and you think, my God, how do we get them cheap power? How, like, how do we help them get them energy? Because energy enables Everything. I mean, nothing that we do in modern society is possible without cheap energy. Literally nothing. This is something I'm sort of directly stealing from Alex. So apologies to Alex Epstein. And we'll keep plugging his book as a, as a consolation prize. But the idea that what energy is or what oil is, is, is sort of the food that machines eat, right? So what, but what is a machine? A machine is simply something that amplifies human labor. So instead of us having to dig our own water well, for instance, we have a machine that can do it in one one thousandth of the time. So now we have uh, 999 thousandths of that time to do something else. Maybe it's other work for our life, but if we have more machines, that also saves us time. And it eventually builds up so that you have this civilization of people who have much more abundance, much more free time, much more wealth in order to pursue their values instead of having to pursue their subsistence on a daily basis. Right. And it's directly, I mean, just from a measurable perspective, I, I think, you know, when you, when you talk like that, it sounds a little bit hard to measure, but just from a measurable perspective, you get like uh, longer 
uh, average lifespans, uh, yes. healthier, uh, you know, healthier lifestyles, um, you know, more uh, lower, lower child mortality rates. You get like all these things happen because we have time to focus on curing diseases or figuring out how to live longer or even just enjoying art and being happier and, and, and producing something creative. So podcasting instead of uh, subsistence farming. That's right. I would much rather be doing this than <laughs> I am. I, mean, I don't have a green thumb. I think I would starve subsistence farming. So uh, me too. Certainly. Uh, yeah. You know, one thing along the lines of, you know, you're talking about the premises that um, people like Josh Fox will hold at, when they, when they present their case one thing that strikes me, and I see it over and over again, not just environmentalism, but in, in anyone trying to push propaganda, is they ignore all of the hidden benefits and or costs of things. So anything that's not uh, obvious and visual, like here, we can light the water on fire, um, that's obvious and visual. The fact that all this energy has all these positive effects is, is ignored because it's not visible. That's right. When, when one of the core things I like to talk to people about, um, especially in, in regards to discussions of climate change, for instance, and the risks of putting carbon into the air, is that's great. I agree with you. We should look at the risks of any given thing that we're doing, whether it's pumping carbon into the air or giving our child an antibiotic or driving a car. We should look at what the risks are because we're humans. We're, we're, uh, you know, we're, we have a mortality. We can die. We could be sick, etc. Um, but there's another side to that coin. If we only looked at the risks of something, we'd never do anything. If we looked at the actual risks of getting into a car, no one would ever drive one because it is statistically the most dangerous thing any of us do on a given day, especially if you live in a major city. But you have to look at what the benefits are to the thing, or to put it in a sort of inverse rhetoric here, what is the risk of not doing it? What risk do we have of, of, of not driving ever again? What, what uh, negatives will that bring to our life? Or if we believe the risks of giving our child an antibiotic are too high, what are the risks of not giving our children antibiotics? They could die of very curable diseases. And so we also have to look at the risks of not putting carbon into the air, or not burning more fossil fuels, not fracking, what is that going to cause? And I think the answer is fairly clear when you look at the times in our history when we were literally not doing these things. We had higher mortality rates. We had, you know, all the things we've said sort of in reverse. It, it was a worse time. It was not great to be alive. Why do you think so many people, and I think especially younger people, really latch on to uh, a lot of claims of radical environmentalists without so much as even questioning anything. Like they'll watch this documentary, The um, Gasland, and they'll just then become evangelists for anti-fracking and, and push it. And, and they get, and it becomes very moral, it becomes a moral crusade. We've all, we've all seen this. Um, why do you think that is? So there's, there, this is a very um, deep question and one that has probably any number of answers. I'll, I'll probably give, I'll just give a couple that I, I think are, are out there. So, so one is, let, let's just start with the most benevolent um, interpretation of this, which is that there are some people who are literally concerned about the environment and they, they've been 
fed these ideas that we are harming the environment and ultimately I think harming the environment they do think is bad for us. So, you know, that might be a minority at this point, but sort of explaining to them that, that these things are untrue and getting them facts is very important. I don't want to lose sight of that because I don't, again, I don't think all people who call themselves environmentalists are necessarily bad. Uh, they, they might have some flawed premises, but they're not as anti-human as folks like Josh Fox or Bill McKibben or some of the other radical environmentalists. But if you step back from that benevolence a bit, I think there is a, an entire sect of it that's this anti-corporate, anti-capitalist ideology, and it gets lumped in. So, you know, corporations are stealing resources from indigenous people, and they're burning them in a way that harms us because they're just, it's just a way for them to make money because they're evil and greedy. And what we really need to do is stop this capitalistic patriarchal system that we have. And one of the the consequences of that is they're environmentalists. If we returned back to Mother Earth and nature and stopped doing these things, uh, we would be better off overall. So there is a sort of Marxist uh, Malthusian, for, for people who are unfamiliar, Thomas Malthus had this idea that we consumed more resources uh, as the population grew than we could keep up with, uh, which turns out that's not true. And we have more people, we have more resources because we have more people to create resources. Um, but he, the, that idea persists, the, the idea that we're just consuming faster than we could possibly keep up with. And so if we don't stop these things, we're going to create mass death. And it's these evil corporations who are doing it simply to make a dollar. Um, and then I think a further sort of step back from that is the, um, to use another Ayn Rand reference, the sort of Ellsworth Tuies of the world, uh, villain in the fountainhead, who may actually see that what they're saying is not particularly true, but they're using these as mechanisms for control because they think they know better, they're, they're central planners, they think they can just do this whole economy thing better, or, or they you know, could pick energy, uh, uh, you know, different type of energy use than what we're doing because they're just better thinkers, so it's wind or solar or geothermal or whatever it is. So I think there are any number of levels to this <laughs> based on... Uh, uh, how benevolent you want to be with with your opponent. One thing that that becomes obvious to me that there's some sort of disingenuous activity going on is if you really care about, let's say you really really care about uh, this all these big businesses, the greedy big businesses doing all this stuff, and you're worried that it's going to hurt the environment for for humans. Well, uh, you would have to say, well, what, what allows us to have these huge carbon footprints in today? Well, we overconsume. What allows overconsumption at a national level? Well, gee, we, we spend a lot more money than we, we make. We have this huge debt and we just go into debt every year and our, our deficit every year and our debt is growing. And so you'd think that one of the immediate things you would say was like, whoa, 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 whoa. We need austerity. We need to dial everything back, stop spending money. We really need to tighten our belts because all this overconsumption is a problem. But they never make that argument. They never say, oh, the government should stop spending. Let's rein everything in. Let's go into austerity. Let's, let's you know, stop overconsuming. Instead, it's let's give more power to the state. Let's regulate. Let's you know, do all this stuff, which is, I wouldn't even call a Band-Aid on the problem that they are purporting to care about. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And there, there are certainly consistency problems <laughs> with, with the, the left and the environmentalists and the radicals in that area. But it's, 
it's a thing where, you know, they, they, they don't see the forest for the trees in the sense that, um, you know, austerity for them wouldn't help because it wouldn't help those who don't have any money to spend anyway, who I think they're seeing as being exploited, right? So uh, whether it's a corporation exploiting the labor of its underclass or it's uh, uh, a fracking corporation exploiting the indigenous peoples uh, or the, the rural communities or whatever, um, you know, it's the exploitation that must be remedied uh, first and foremost in their minds. It's the uh, inequality gap that must be lessened um, overall. And energy is just one way in which we can do that. There are many components to the economy. You know, you never meet a radical environmentalist uh, who wants to end fracking, et cetera, uh, who also uh, is in love with tax cuts or, or right. uh, you know, other, other big business in other areas. It's a very, uh, you know, it tends to be the same tropes over and over again because they're really Marxist. Right. It reveals their agenda as actually yeah. not really concerned with the environment, but really just Marxism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I've heard the, uh, this is probably old, but I've heard the term, uh, they're watermelons, right? They're green on the outside and red on the inside. That's, yes. that's, that's how to view them. <laughs> So the other thing that I, I think, you know, I haven't actually talked a lot about climate change, and I know that's a huge subject that I don't, I don't necessarily want to get into in this podcast, yeah. but one of the reasons I haven't spoken about it is I, I feel like I need to do some more research mm -hmm. in order intelligently about it, but something that makes me want to talk about it is it's very clear, this is one of those subjects where if you ask basic questions and, and reveal that there's a little bit of skepticism like gee i'm not sure about that are you guys sure or, or what about this and that seems counterintuitive there you're not met with an honest rational response of like oh yes that's a good question well actually here's the answer and i understand why you think that way and blah 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 and and here's here's a counterpoint you're met with shrieking like religious fervor back and you're called the science denier and told to shut up and um it's, it's, uh, you're attacked. Yes, it is definitely one of those um, third rail of leftist politics that uh, there, I mean, anyone on the left now, if you're running for president or congressman or whatever, you're not even allowed to, to, to touch in any meaningful way and engage in any meaningful dialogue. You have to sort of uh, swallow the propaganda presented by the environmentalist uh, side and, and, and run with it. Um, that's one of the ways I think in which environmentalists have have won, and I think it's the way in which they're they've sort of shifted. So it, it's not so much that the environmentalist movement is super heavily anti fracking at this exact moment. They were a lot more anti fracking three, four, five years ago when they still thought there was a battle to be had. They basically lost that battle on the state level, and so now it's much focused much more on catastrophic climate change, uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, 12 years to live, or whatever it is, at the Democratic debate. I think we're down to seven or eight years to live. Oh, I, I saw 14 months recently. Oh, well, it just keeps getting shorter. And so. we're all dead 20 minutes ago, Carter. Yes. Uh, that's how this all works. And it, it's sad, because the political side of this has taken so strong a hold over the conversation that even the scientists who believe that man is causing global warming um, and think something should be done about it, even most of them, and I've met so many of them, are not anywhere near as radical about it 
as the uh, political activists are. I mean, even the vast majority of the scientists I met who, who believe that human beings are, are warming the planet even significantly don't think that the solutions being proposed like by the more radical among us, like Bill McKibben, who thinks that we should reduce fossil fuel usage by 98% over the next 10 years, you know, none of them are on board with that. I mean, most of, there is a scientific consensus that, you know, carbon added to the atmosphere does warm the planet slightly. The, and, and no one really disagrees with about that. Even the skeptical scientists, even, even me, a radical individualist capitalist, of course, carbon emitted into the air will warm the planet slightly. The question is to what degree and will or will it not be catastrophic? And I think well, that's- Will it be good for human flourishing? Getting back to what we were talking about before, is it, is it bad if the earth is a couple degrees? Right. Is there a benefit? That's exactly right. Starting to talk about the idea of, okay, what are the risks of putting carbon in the air, but what are the benefits or what are the risks of not doing it? And there, you're right. This is a topic that is a podcast in and of itself. And people who are interested, there are many smarter people than me out there who have discussed this issue in particular. But, but I'll say this. I think the in is, um, I, you don't have to be radically skeptical in the sense of, uh, you know, just denying it's not happening under any circumstance. There's no way it could possibly happen. I think it's completely conceivable and scientifically proven that, that adding carbon to the air could raise the temperature to some degree. But the answer is, okay, then what? What does that mean? So let's say adding temperature causes some amount of human suffering. What will alleviate that human suffering? Will, for instance, burning more fossil fuels and being more prosperous and being more industrial relieve that? Uh, or will abandoning fossil fuels relieve that, which we know in fact causes human suffering. Burning or having less reliable abundant energy, we know 100% decreases prosperity and makes people worse off. Um, so the question is, what, what are the net benefits? What are the net causes? Now, I, I think people who are interested should look into the, the concept of the greening planet. One of the maybe underreported stories uh, uh, that relates to climate change and carbon emissions is that uh, plants, Trees are thriving throughout the world in ways we haven't seen in a very long time. And the earth is greening in a way that is totally unexpected because there is a certain, uh, you know, the, the, the greenhouse effect here. If you ever pump a bunch of carbon into a greenhouse, the plants don't die. They get much bigger, much healthier, and they actually consume much more of the carbon. And the, it's harder to put more carbon into the air in a greenhouse because it's logarithmic. So the more you put in, the more the trees will consume, the better off they'll be, and the harder it gets to actually raise the amount of carbon in the greenhouse. So people are interested to look into that effect. I think it's particularly fascinating. There could be overall, perhaps, a net benefit to burning carbon, other than the obvious industrial yeah, benefit. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, because I do remember seeing an article recently that there were, we were going through this greening, which, um, you know, people, you're right, people don't talk about it. Um, they don't talk about the benefits of land that's not arable now becoming arable when, yes. uh, when it's a, a degree warmer or, or something like that. Yes, there's, there's downsides, but you know, those, those downsides are, I, I guess the thing causing the downsides actually has a lot of benefit to a lot of people as yeah. well. So you, you got to measure that. 
Absolutely. Just in terms of, of uh, you know, the simplistic hot versus cold. Now, there are other elements to this. I fully admit that in terms of weather-related uh, deaths, et cetera, although weather-related deaths are also down by 98% um, since 1900. So take that for what it's worth. But, but just in terms of hot-cold, if the earth warms and more places are habitable, Dealing with warmth is much easier than dealing with cold. What we should really fear is another ice age. That is very difficult to deal with in terms of uh, machinery and industrialization and making our lives better. Heat is, is in many ways much easier to deal with. Just look at people who live in, in some of the warmest places on the planet and they, they thrive there, they flourish there. Human beings have built entire civilizations uh, in deserts, in, in places that are totally inhospitable and have now made them wildly successful because of things like air conditioning, uh, because of, of industrialization, in essence, um, not the least of which is I used to live in L.A. And one of my favorite things in, uh, when I lived in L.A. was leaving L.A. Uh, and one of the trips we would take is we would drive to Vegas, which is not that far away. But when you drive to Vegas at night and you're sort of just driving through hours and hours of abject nothingness, uh, just desolate nothingness, and then you, there's a point at which you crest a hill and you're greeted by an ocean of lights. Just, a, just a, the entire horizon is filled with lights. And, it just, and you look at the thermometer, it's, you know, it's, 10 at night or something, it's 112 degrees. Uh, <laughs> what makes this possible, what makes this flourishing possible is industrialization, is human ingenuity, is us taking things that were sitting useless in the ground, be it natural gas or coal or oil, and turning it into a resource for us to have this civilization that we have. Yeah. And, and I think we've kind of come full circle to this idea that the purpose of the purpose of of or at least the premise that we should be asking ourselves is is how do humans flourish not how to preserve the earth in some particular state that it's in right now which even on the surface seems silly because the earth's not like the earth is stagnant uh right it hasn't been this way for you know, millennia, it's just this way right now. Um, um, I think in, in high school, a teacher blew my mind before I thought about any of this in these terms by relaying the fact that 99.9% .9 of all species that have ever lived went extinct before human beings came along, which yes. is a crazy thing to think about uh, in terms of the diversity of the, the biodiversity of the planet and, uh, you know, animals adapting and, and whatnot. But human beings... Um, you know, this is this has become a strangely unpopular view, but I believe that human beings are uh, more important than animals in many ways. We have moral agency. We, you know, the death of a child is more is is much sadder to me than the death of a rodent, for instance. And so, I believe that any of philosophy we should adopt, whether it be of energy or or just how to live our lives, should be very human centric. We should, as you're saying, think about what it means for human beings to flourish in this world. Uh, obviously, that doesn't mean, and it doesn't have to mean, it doesn't mean in reality at the cost of destroying our environment because we wouldn't flourish in a destroyed environment. But what does it mean for us to flourish in our environment? That is the important question. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, not, the, it's not the question being asked. No, it absolutely right. is not. But hopefully, 
there are some some great people out there working on that issue right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, another time I think I'd like to talk to you more about, um, I, there could be a whole show about alternate forms of energy because there's, you know, the, the, the myth that solar and wind are viable replacements is, is silly. And frankly, that they're even environmentally sound from by their own standard of environmentalists. Um, is pretty ridiculous. So, um, but I think this is good for now. I think, I think we've, we've hit on fracking. We've hit on some, we kind of tied it to other stuff. Um, anything else that you would recommend, you know, people think about when they think about fracking or um, just, just to kind of get back to fracking. I, I recommend people watch Frack Nation. It's a great documentary. Um, any other comments on, on kind of the fracking debate right now? Well, yes, please do watch Frack Nation. You can get it on Amazon or uh, any place, VOD places. You can, you can download it or buy a DVD if you, you so choose. Um, but what I'll say is it's really, unless you go there. Now, I'm not saying make a, a vacation out of fracking. <laughs> what I'm saying is, you know, if you're driving somewhere anyway, just look up where these communities are where fracking is happening. Drive through them. You know, stop at a local diner in the, in the Marcellus Shale area or in the Permian Basin or somewhere in Texas, Odessa, if you're, if you're driving across the country. And just look for yourself. Look with your own eyes. Don't, don't necessarily believe what the news is saying, what I'm saying. Go to one of these communities and actually see them. And you will see that it is not some environmental wasteland. The people there are not dying of, of exposure to chemicals or horrible drinking water. No one's on fire in the streets from their faucets. They're living happy, healthy flourishing, prosperous lives in these communities where fracking are happening. Fracking is happening. So just go there, see for yourself. Great advice. Um, Daniel, thank you for your time. I, we'll have you back to talk about more stuff in the future, but this was really great. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the conversation. So um, thank you. Thank you for, for joining. Thanks, Carter. I love talking about fracking. Until next time. <laughs>